Fun facts. Yes, facts are plural today. Emphasis on the facts because today's topic had so many good facts that I couldn't just choose one. I had to choose two. So, Fun fact number one is that surfing is estimated to be a $13 billion industry with 23 million surfers worldwide. Y'all, can you believe that? $13 billion? I can't even wrap my head around it. And then 23 million surfers worldwide. That's a, that's a lot of people. Okay. A lot of people enjoy surfing. And then fact number two, let's talk about the longest distance surfed. The world record for the longest wave surfed is held by national surfing champion, Gary Sibidora of Panama. He surfed 43.1 miles along the Panama Canal on March 19th, 2011, following a wave creating boat. So, okay, Gary, riding the waves for 43.1 miles. Okay, that is impressive. Now, if you haven't guessed by now, today we're talking about the history of surfing. Not to be confused with swag surfing. And in particular, we're going to be looking at the hidden black history of surfing that definitely wasn't in our textbook. Welcome back to our bi-weekly podcast that helps us uncover the things we always wish we learned from that boring, bulky textbook. I'm your host, Toya, and you're now listening to the summer series that we have going on, which is a limited edition of episodes dedicated to summer topics. So this is season five, episode two, called Riding the Waves, The Black History of Surfing. In this quick solo dolo episode, well, should I say wavy solo dolo episode? (laughs) You see what I did there? We're diving into the roots, the foundation of where surfing came from, answering questions like who were the first group of folks to catch a wave? Um, I've got some solid evidence of a story that starts long before Hawaii. So keep listening because there's more, baby. We're also going to unravel the fascinating journey of how surfing spread across the globe from the coast of Africa to the shores of distant lands. And then, of course, your girl has to put you on to some extraordinary black surfers that we should know then and now who are changing the wave riding game. It's summertime. Don't ask me how we're already in August. I don't have the answers way. But nothing says summertime like the beach. Let's go to the beach for a second, can we? Man, I love the beach. Just close your eyes for a second. And just listen to the ocean sounds. You can feel the sand between your toes. You can smell and almost taste, right? The salty ocean. You might even hear birds, you know, those like aggressive seagulls when you have food out. You might hear them flapping around. You might hear kids in the background. But yeah, let's get to the beach. It's so relaxing. This summer series episode is close to my heart because for the past two summers here in L.A., your historian homie has been learning how to surf. Yep, I'm trying to be a surfer baddie out here, okay? There's a group out here called Go Adventure Crew. It's started by two women of color who just like doing fun activities. And they've been hosting some surfing lessons a couple of times throughout the summer. 
Go Adventure Crew's mission is to get underrepresented folks outside, y'all, to enjoy life. And so I signed up with them to do surfing lessons last summer initially. And usually their surf lessons is led by a surfing community for people of color called The Color of Water. And I think at this point, I've taken up to maybe four or five lessons over the past two summers, right? 2022 and 2023. And don't get it twisted, y'all. I am, you know, I'm standing on the board. I'm definitely doing that. You know, even one time I, I twerked a little bit on the board for like a millisecond. But, you know, I'm still in surfing kindergarten, you know, still doing the baby waves that fizzle out at the end of the beach, you know, where the shoreline starts to hit the sands. Like I'm there. That's where I'm at. I'm not out in the ocean catching those big, 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 big waves yet. I'm not there yet. But I do love swimming. You know, I'm convinced that in my past life, I probably was a mermaid. And I've been swimming since I was young. I was on a swim team at one point. I quit. That shit was intense. Um, but I love the ocean. And one of my personal goals was to learn to surf when I moved out here in LA. So yeah, I just wanted to catch y'all up on why I am so excited for this episode, which I say about every episode because I am excited. But you know, I'm being a little surfer girly out here. It's so fun. It's so fun to like learn something new for the first time, especially as you get older. I love that you can't have your phone right in the ocean with you. So you really get to disconnect. You know, when you get up there, it feels like flying. And, you know, I'm still doing the baby waves. So I can only imagine when I graduate how even better I feel and how higher I will fly. Right. Okay. So I just wanted to give you a little background on my connection to surfing. Let's get into what you really came here for. Right. The history part. Now, you know, we love to kick off the history segment with a definition. So surfing, right? Not to be confused with surf, which is a type of wave. Surfing is a sport or a pastime of riding a wave towards the shore while standing or lying on a surfboard. Waves suitable for surfing are mainly found in the ocean, right? But waves can also be found in lakes, in rivers, and in wave pools. The word surfing refers to a person riding a wave using a board. They can ride this board on their belly or their knees. And while nowadays surfing mostly refers to, you know, riding a wave standing up, you can do it on your knees or your belly. Okay, (laughs) so we got the definitions out the way. We know what surfing is. We know what a surfer is. And so let's get into this history of how it all began. Now, if you look at the history of surfing, like type in a quick little Google search or, you know, if you do find it in a history book, nine times out of 10, you will read documents by scholars that say that the first account of surfing was written in Hawaii in 1778. Yep, history tells us that Polynesians were pretty much the only people to develop surfing, but that doesn't tell the whole story, right? Some of the first surfing crafts were discovered in South America and Peru in like a thousand BCE, which I don't even know what that is, but I know that's a long, long ass time ago, like thousands of years ago. However, even Peru wasn't the only region where surfing sprung up. It sprung up independently throughout the world including in Hawaii. 
According to Kevin Dawson, who is a professor of history at the University of California, and he also is an author of a book called Undercurrents of Power, he says, and his research shows, that the first accounting of surfing was not written in 1778. Actually, it was 130-ish years earlier and 10,000 miles off the mark. His evidence shows that the earliest record of people riding waves goes back to the 1640s. Well, of Black people riding waves, right, goes back to the 1640s off of the Gold Coast in Africa. In his research, it was the swimming expertise of Africans that helped them to develop surfing in what are now places like Senegal, the Ivory Coast, Ghana, Cameroon, Liberia, West Central Africa, you know, all those places. You see, ancient Africa had thousands of miles of surf-filled waters. And with the population of strong swimmers and fishermen and merchants who knew how to read the ocean, they started to learn surfing and they learned surfing patterns and used these things called surf canoes that could catch and ride waves up to 10 feet high. Africans living on the coast surfed on three to five foot long wooden surfboards where they were either sitting, kneeling, or standing. Africans rode the waves on long boards about 12 feet in length, which is about like two refrigerators stacked on top of each other. So just imagine a board that long. That is a long, y'all. And they use that to navigate the coast. So you may be wondering, okay, why don't people know about the first accounts of surfing in the 1640s in Africa, as well as they know all this other stuff? Well, there are several factors that limit our understanding of surfing in Africa. The one major setback is that there are only four early records that Africans surfing existed. Four. That's it. The first record of African surfing was written by a German dude named Michael Hamsermann. I think that's how you say it. H-E-M-M-E-R-S-A-M. And it was a little problematic and confusing, like his record, because he couldn't really understand what he was looking at, much like the rest of the Europeans in Africa at the time. Michael literally wrote, quote, the parents tie their children to boards and throw them into the water, end quote. Like, (laughs) he really thought he was watching parents drown their children? Like, okay, Michael, me for real. So that's why it's kind of hard to initially be like, oh, the earl- these records show surfing because like the records are not that great. And his description is clearly a little confused himself. And that was in what, the 1640s. After that, we have another record that came up in 1834. And this is when, you know, the Europeans, aka the colonizers, finally started to realize what they were witnessing. And this one account was actually in Ghana. And it was James Alexander who wrote, quote, from the beach, meanwhile, might be seen boys swimming into the sea with light boards under their stomach. They wait for a surf and came rolling down like a cloud on top of it, end quote. Clearly, they're starting to realize, you know, what they're seeing based on these records and putting it down. And later on, right, there are some other accounts by some colonizers in 1861. And then there was even a colonizer who observed different Africans on the West Coast, even body surfing, right? Not just on boards, but using their bodies to surf. 
And, you know, I always find it so interesting that, you know, when we talk about the first accounts of a lot of things, like in the context of this topic, surfing, it's only legit when a colonizer or European writes about it, right? Like something hasn't happened in history or like something starts based on whether a European saw it, right? From their point of view. And I always just wonder, like, maybe we just don't have records of other, you know, communities or like, what were the West Africans recording or did they have stuff and hieroglyphics or stuff like that that may have been ruined through colonization and war. But I always just find it so interesting that in history, you know, records are always from Europeans, you know, interesting. (laughs) I digress. During these times in Africa, surfing wasn't just for play, but it was also for work and the economy and everyday survival. All exported and imported goods, you know, in Africa over the like 500 years between the 1400s and the 1950s were done on what is known as canoe surfers or like canoe surfboards. And they were done by canoe surf men. And they would just be on these like canoe surfboards or in these canoe surf vessels, I can't speak today, that would bring back goods between land and sea because a lot of these coasts were really rough. So they would have to use kind of like a surfboard or a surfboard canoe to transport things. And these surf canoes were vessels that were used to fish, right? And bring them back to sea. Like I said before, also bring goods back to sea. And it was really the only access to resources for a while, right? Until they started creating ports that was built later on, right? After the 1950s. Like surfing boards of today, ancient West African craftsmen designed hundreds of different types of boards, and they were each uniquely designed to help you figure out how to ride different types of waves, which is pretty dope, like hundreds of boards. West African surf canoes held a sacred significance and spiritual meaning. Each surf canoe was made from a specific tree in like a ceremony kind of process of making that board or that canoe. These trees were believed to bridge the gap between heaven and earth. And the spirits dwelling within these surf canoes maintain a connection with water spirits through the lifespan of the canoe, which is so beautiful. Look, West Africans respected the sea and the land so much. To them, the ocean held a spiritual significance and was the home to mystical beings and gods like Mama Wata, known as Mother Water, who was a divine feminine mermaid embodying the connection between land and sea. Beautiful, right? And so I think that's why, you know, a lot of West Africans and some of these records show this like freedom and the children because culturally and spiritually, there was this connection and trust and respect for the ocean and there wasn't a fear. And historically, you know, a lot of the colonizers and Europeans, especially when they came to, you know, some of these coastal lands in West Africa and other parts of the world, they were very scared and nervous of water, right? They were very uncomfortable. Now, once Africa started being colonized by the colonizers, the colonizers shut that whole surfing and swimming shit down because that was seen as a skill and an advantage against the colonizers. And they really didn't want, you know, black folks to be strong swimmers. They didn't want 
people to swim. You know, when we think about the transatlantic slave trade and swimming and people jumping overboard, it was just seen as like, this is an advantage that they have over us. And so when we come and divide and conquer Africa, this huge continent, we are going to make sure that we can maintain control. And by doing that, right, they had to kind of shut down some of the advancements of these coastal places. And so surfing stopped. According to Dawson's research, historical accounts indicate that as far back as the 1700s, enslaved Africans, right, who came from West Africa and other Afro-American, Caribbean and South American descendants engaged in traditional surfing and surf canoeing along, you know, the United States, the Eastern United States, where the water is, to Brazil. And that this fascinating history, right, from the first accounts in West Africa to, you know, the descendants enslaved Africans also surfing in America, this all predates, it's before the introduction of the Hawaiian surf culture to the mainland of the United States. So there you have it. That's the early accounts of surfing in Africa. Now, you may or may not know about the stereotypes around Black folks not being able to swim. That's a thing. Um, It's a stereotype. You also might be familiar with the fact that historically, Black folks have been denied access to public swimming pools, to beaches, and to just general water sports, right, by Jim Crow laws. So for a long time, like when many other Black folks have been systematically excluded from something, We just thought that surfing wasn't for us, that the surfing culture wasn't for us. It wasn't open to us. And that's just simply, you know, not true. And I think today you'll see, and we're going to talk about some surf crews and some surfing people from the past and currently who are changing how surfing looks, right? Diversifying surfing and teaching younger generations to surf. But one thing I want you to know is that during the civil rights movement in the 1950s, Similar to sit-ins that were happening, you know, throughout the South and up into the East Coast, there was also Black beachgoers that were facing segregated waters. And they did this thing called wade-ins where they would occupy, you know, these segregated beaches or go out into the water. And you shouldn't be surprised to hear that these wade-ins were met by police with the same response as any other civil rights protest. So that's disheartening, but I just thought that that was something we should know about because I never heard about wait-ins. I heard about sit-ins and that's just really important to know. Nowadays, us Black folks are being unapologetic, right? We are taking up spaces, especially those that have traditionally been considered off limits, right? We don't know no limits no more, okay? There's surfing collections on the East and West Coast committed to creating safe spaces for Black people or people of color to surf, helping Black folks to understand that they belong in the water, helping to teach Black folks and people of color or Bioc people how to surf. And so I just wanted to let you know about some surfing collectives that you should know that are doing this. There's the Black Surf Association that was started in 1978. There's also Color the Water, which I mentioned earlier out here in Los Angeles, which is a community of people who are helping other people of color on this coast, West Coast, that want to learn how to surf. 
There's textured waves as well. There's black girl surf. There's brown girl surf. There's black surfers collective. There's so fly surf school. And there's also the Laura Beva collective. And there's also a couple more um, that I'm sure that I'm missing, but I just want to give you a couple, you know, just a few collectives that you can look up if you're interested in learning surfing or just seeing what they're doing or seeing how you can support. If you want to donate, check those out. And I will definitely put those in the show notes. Now there's a couple of, you know, black surfers from then and now that I want you to know. Of course, I didn't capture all of them. There's quite a few. So I don't want you to think that the black surfing people is limited to this list that I'm going to give you because it's it's not that long, but they are very important people that wasn't in our textbooks that we should know, some who are no longer with us and some who are still rocking with us. The first person I think we all should know is Nick Gabalon. And I think I said that right. And he's America's first documented African-American surfer. And he was just pivotal in breaking down racial barriers and paving the way for Black wave riders today. In the late 1940s, he taught himself how to surf on a stretch of sand at Santa Monica State Beach. And that area was known as the Negro Beach, um, aka the Inkwell Beach. And it was a place that was popular for Black folks who wanted to have less harassment on the beach, right? Um, And so that was like their safe space. Nick would sometimes paddle 12 miles from Inkwell to the predominantly white, kind of white-only Malibu Beach, right? And this was in the 1940s because he just wanted to enjoy their beach. You know, Malibu Beach is known for having the best waves. And so he would paddle 12 miles out there. And so he was kind of breaking down racial barriers and people got to see him. Um, Unfortunately, he died in a surfing accident at the young age of 25 on June 5th. 1955, I believe. R.I.P. Nick. Another person that I think we should know that's a cool black surfer is Montgomery. I can't say his last name, but he's also known as Buttons. And he is considered a surf legend. He was a son of a black military father and Hawaiian mother. So he had, you know, his mixed background really affected, I think, his ability to see the racial discrimination in surfing because he has a Hawaiian background in surfing and he's also black. He was famous for his tail slides and his 360 degree tricks. Y'all should look them up. He's crazy. It's so good. Buttons started competing in surfing competitions in his early teens and later went on to win the Malibu Sunkiss Pro in 1979. And he passed away in 2013. Another person that I want you to know is Mary Mills, aka Surf Sister. And Mills is dedicated to documenting, you know, surfing black surfers and obviously also committed to riding waves. And she picked up the mat, as they say, around 2008. She admittedly could not swim until the age of 23. And she started surfing at the age of 38. And Mary is still out here catching waves and doing interviews. So y'all should definitely check her out. Another surfer that I would love for us to know is Sharon Sheffer. 
and she's the first black woman to become a professional surfer. She's still killing it now. Um, I think she's like in her 40s. Along with her professional surfing, Sharon is an actress and a stunt double, aka she is a badass, and she's performed stunts in Star Trek The Next Generation and Star Trek The Fourth The Voyage Home. Okay, Sharon, I see you. <laughs> and then the last person that I think we should know, well, it's not the last person I think you should know, the last person on my list that we should know is Rick Blocker. And he is a black surfing historian. And you know, I love a historian as a historian, okay? Um, and he first picked up surfing around the age of 12. He actually worked with some collectives to make a honorary day for Nick. Remember, that was the first person I told y'all about, Nick Gavilon, the um, first documented African-American surfer. He helped create a day for him out here where he's honored. And when I say out here, I mean LA. Like Nick, Rick spent most of his time riding waves in the Inkwell Beach in Santa Monica. He went on to found the website blacksurfing.com, which is still up. And he's a member of the Malibu Surfing Association, Diversity in Aquatics, and the Black Surfing Association. So Rick is out here changing the game. And yeah, those are the what? Five, one, two, three, four, five. Yes, those are the five surfers that I wanted you to know. I challenge you to keep looking. There are some dope surfers, you know, millennials, women in their, women and men, you know, in their thirties and their, I gave you some people in their forties. There's some teenagers coming up. There's some 20 year old people of color, black folks who are surfing. So I encourage you to take a deep dive. I'll leave some resources in my notes if you want to learn more about them, because there's a lot of dope people out here and I couldn't, I couldn't fit them all in this episode. So that is the conclusion of this solo dolo episode. See, I told y'all it was short on the history of surfing, right? Riding the waves, uncovering the black history of surfing. I learned so much because I definitely didn't know a lot of this. Like I do on every episode, you know, I didn't know anything until I started doing research. I heard a couple of things, of course, but I have to verify it with research. I can't just be like, oh, somebody told me this. So let me give y'all a podcast episode. That would be irresponsible. So, you know, I love learning alongside y'all. We're learning together because I do the research. I put it together. I put it on this episode. And then a lot of times, you know, y'all reach out and share, you know, things that you know or things that I'm missing. So I hope you learned something. If you did reach out to me on the interwebs, that wasn't in my textbook. That's the name of us all over the interwebs on Instagram, on Pinterest, on threads, on X, whatever social media, old or new, it's that wasn't in my textbook, okay? Or Toya from Harlem is me. So let me know if you learned something new. Um, If you have not yet left a review for the podcast, this is where I ask you to do me that favor, right? Just take a second, you know, drop a couple stars, preferably five, and type a couple of lines about how you enjoyed this episode or any other episode that you've listened to. Or give me some feedback. You know, I love reading the reviews. The reviews help the algorithm of whatever streaming platform you're listening on, whether that be Spotify or Apple, see that people are listening to it and they recognize it on the back end. It helps us get on list. So, you know, I would love if you could leave a review if you haven't already. And if you have, just share an episode with a friend, you know, simple enough. 
Thank you so much for listening. This episode has definitely going to change the way I go to the beach. I feel like when I go to the beach now and I'm looking out in the ocean, I'm going to think about these early records from the 1640s of coastal Africans, West Africans, you know, riding the waves and using that to fish and to move goods and to navigate between different communities, you know? So yeah, I hope that you can take this with you throughout the summer. If you go to the beach or if you go to the pool, if you're on any body of water, just take a moment to think about the roots of that and how far we've come, you know, it's really amazing. So I think I'm going to enjoy surfing even more now after this episode and, you know, stay tuned for our next episode, which is on the history of cowboys. It's going to be so good. I should say cowboys and cowgirls, right? We're talking about everybody. Um, So make sure you come back for that episode. Make sure you're subscribed. And until next time, remember, knowledge is power. Thank you.